are certainly thankful for the day that God has given us and for the opportunity that we have to be together this evening to spend time in worship to Him and to be able to open up His Word. It is a blessing for us to be called children of God and for us to seek to honor Him. This entire week, we have been looking at what we're calling hallmarks of the church. And those hallmarks are marks of authenticity. They're characteristics that help us to identify the church that we read about in the New Testament, that help us to better appreciate what God's plan for us as His people truly is. And as we seek to know the will of God and do the will of God, we can indeed be pleasing to Him. And so we started on Sunday morning and we talked about the identity of the church. And one of the ways that we can best understand what the church is, is by looking at the various descriptions that are used in Scripture to provide us with insight toward it. And so you remember that Paul told Timothy that the church is the house of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so the church has an obligation to serve as the foundation for the truth as it is being proclaimed and the pillar which holds up the truth. You remember that we are to be the flock of God. And as the flock of God, it's our task to submit to God's will. You might recall that we are to be the spokesman for God. And as the spokesman for God, we are to preach forth the gospel to those around us. But we're also to be the family of God. And so as God's family, we weep with one another when tragedy strikes. And we encourage one another when things are going well. And we are the body of Christ. And so all of us do our part to build up the cause. And we are the bride of Christ. And so we seek to be pure to be what God intends for the bride of Christ to be. We talked about conduct. God has a plan for the church. There is a right way for us to conduct ourselves. And if there is a proper way to conduct ourselves, there is also an improper way. And if we're going to be New Testament Christians, we have to conduct ourselves properly. We talked about unity. We live in a world that is divided. Clearly, God wants His followers to be united, and yet it is the case that many people are not on the same page. And so we ask, how can we have the unity that is prescribed in Scripture? What if we preach Christ? What if we live for Christ? What if we imitate Christ? What if we rejoice in Christ? As the book to the Philippians teaches us. We talked about biblical faith, not merely granting assent to a fact, but responding to the Word of God. And we saw how Noah, when God told him to build an ark of gopher wood, did exactly what God said. God spoke and man heard and man did. The same thing with regard to Abraham when he was told to offer his son Isaac on Mount Moriah as a sacrifice. He spoke and Abraham heard and he did. The same thing with Joshua. The same thing should be true of us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We talked last evening about salvation. How individuals in Scripture were concerned with what one must do to be saved. 
And how those individuals, when they asked that question, like the Philippian jailer was told where he needed to begin, and the folks on Pentecost were told to repent and be baptized, and Saul of Tarsus was told, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Hallmarks of the church. You can't describe the church to a friend. You can't convey what the church is to those around you if you do not know the identity of the church or what the church is supposed to do with regard to its conduct or how the church is supposed to be united in following Christ. You can't describe the church to those around you if you don't understand the true nature of faith and what that means for each follower of Christ or about the salvation that is available to us because of Him. And this evening, we're going to conclude this series by thinking very carefully about one other hallmark, and there are many others. The hallmark of steadfastness. Now, generally speaking, when we think about steadfastness, one of two things comes to mind. We think about the idea of sticking with it. And perhaps that thought comes to mind when we are facing trials and difficulties. It's easy for an individual who is burdened by the trials of life to throw their hands up in the air and say, I quit, I give up. But there's another aspect of steadfastness that I'd like to address tonight. It is the idea of dedication to the principles of God's plan. You see, we have a very special identity as God's people. There are certain things that make us what we are. When I sit down in a Bible study with an individual, for example, and they're asking me about the church of Christ or the church that belongs to Christ, they'll ask why they should want to be a member of that particular group instead of whatever group they are traditionally affiliated with. And one of the simple answers that I give them is this. Because it is our desire, more than anything else, to simply be Christian. Now the real question is, what does that mean? I have individuals that I'll study with, and we'll go to Acts chapter 2. And we'll read the events of Pentecost, and we went over those last evening, and as we read those events... When we come to the climax of that passage and the audience is pricked in the heart and they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter tells them, you repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that same day, a great number of individuals obey the gospel. I generally ask this question and I think it's a fair one. The Bible says in that text, the Lord added those who were saved daily to the church. My question is this, to which church were they added? To which church? Now sometimes people protest. They'll say, that doesn't make sense. We didn't have all of the division that we have today in the religious world. And I will respond as kindly as I possibly can by simply saying, that is entirely the point that I'm trying to make. Why can't we strip away from religion all of the things that have been added through the centuries and simply be the church that you read about in the New Testament? Why can't we simply do what they did to become what they were? 
Why can't we worship the way that those individuals worshiped? Why can't we have the same organizational structure that they had? Why can't we obey the same gospel that they did? And if it's possible for us to obey the gospel the same way they did, and if it's possible for us to structure ourselves the same way or organize ourselves the same way as they did, and if it's possible for us to worship and conduct ourselves in the exact same way that they did, why can't we simply be what they were? And I'll propose to you tonight that I believe that we can be. That we can be simply Christians. And so there are some principles that I believe we need to be stead fast in following. Hallmarks, perhaps, each of their own right, that I'd like to share with you tonight that I think define us as God's people. Hallmarks of the church. The first of those principles that I think is of utmost importance, an area wherein we need steadfastness, is our willingness to dedicate ourselves to the New Testament pattern. This is the very thing that so many people did who turned from sectarianism to Scripture. Individuals who realized that the things that we're doing aren't the sorts of things that we're reading about in our Bibles. Why are we practicing this? Why are we doing this? Why are we engaging in this sort of behavior? And they decided we're not going to do those things any longer. We're going to speak where the Bible speaks. That, by the way, is what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, isn't it? If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. We're going to speak where the Bible speaks. We're going to be silent where the Bible is silent. We're going to trust that God in His Word has directed us, has given us exactly what we need to do. And when the New Testament describes what the first century Christians did, we're going to seek to do simply what those individuals did. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he had this particular idea in mind. He was worried somewhat about them. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. He said, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now Paul had in mind the simple pattern that you read about in your New Testament. Sometimes when we're talking about a pattern, we, I think, perhaps misunderstand the idea. Individuals will say things to me in Bible studies like this. Well, if God wanted us to do this in this particular way that you're describing, why didn't He just give us a list of things that we're supposed to do, start at number one, and end with whatever number that He got to? Number one, go to church. Number two, be kind to your neighbor. Number three, and so on and so forth the list could go. Why didn't God communicate His will with propositions like that? And I use this illustration, and I hope it's helpful to you. When I was growing up, I loved the game of baseball. Still do. Love baseball. What if baseball stopped being played? What if everyone who has ever played the game of baseball throws their gloves away 
and baseball stops being played. I would suggest to you that within a couple hundred years at least, all of the records of baseball would be lost perhaps from this world. No more fields, ball diamonds, ball bats, balls, gloves, and so forth. And what if 200 years from now in the future, after baseball has been completely forgotten, someone comes across a rule book for the game of baseball? Could they, if they followed that rule book, reconstruct what the game of baseball is? Is that possible? They start to read the rules of the game of baseball, and the game of baseball is played on a diamond, and they understand what the diamond is. And they see that there are 90 feet between the base paths and 60 feet and 6 inches between the pitcher's mound and home plate. And they understand that if you get three strikes, you're out, and four balls, you get to walk. And they begin to have a conception of the rules of the game. Could they play the game of baseball? You say, of course they could. But what if, tucked in a back pocket... Of that rule book, there was perhaps, let's say, a thumb drive or maybe a DVD. Now, they would probably have to do some research to figure out what both of those things were, but let's say that they understand. And on that thumb drive or on that DVD are 10 years' worth of World Series games. The actual games that have been played by the Major League Baseball teams, the World Series, at the very highest level of the game of baseball. Let me suggest something to you. If you're trying to reconstruct the game of baseball, I think that actually watching the World Series games might be more helpful than reading the rule book, don't you? To see the game being played. Let me tell you why God has communicated His will to us in the way that He has. Rather than simply giving us propositions. He has shown us what the church looks like in action. And He has frozen it in place in time for us in a word that was inspired by the Holy Spirit so that we can not only know what is expected of the church, but that we can see what is expected of the church. And so when you read your New Testament and we talk about returning to the New Testament pattern, we're talking about doing what they did when what they did was approved by God. And so when we see the first century church organized with elders and deacons as the church in Philippi was, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, we can say without any hesitation, we need to organize ourselves with elders serving over the local congregation and deacons being servants. Why? Because that is the prescribed New Testament pattern. And when we see the early Christians meeting to observe the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, we can say without any apology that when we come together on the first day of the week, we must observe the Lord's Supper. Because we're trying to do what they did. We're trying to be what they were. And there is a pattern of behavior that is set for us in the New Testament. And if you're going to be dedicated to becoming a member of the church that belongs to Christ, you have to follow the pattern that describes what the church that belongs to Christ does throughout Scripture. And so we organize ourselves the way the first century church organized itself. And we worship the way the first century church worshipped. And of course, we work in the same areas that the first century congregation worked. And so we seek to be evangelistic and share the Word of God with those around us. And we seek to help those who are in need, who cannot help themselves. And we seek to encourage one another and build one another up. And so we have a dedication to the New Testament pattern. The second area wherein we need steadfastness, though, 
is in our dedication to the authority of the Bible. You see, it's one thing to say we have a pattern that we ought to follow, but it's another thing to fully appreciate the pattern. I want you to open your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul had complimented Timothy earlier in the chapter and described how he had known from his childhood the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise. But he also wanted to emphasize the power of those Scriptures. And so he says in verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, the idea of flowing from God or being God-breathed. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why does that matter to us? What difference really does it make? Paul goes on to explain in verse 17. He says that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you know what God has done for you in giving you the Bible? He's made it possible for you to be prepared for every good work that might need to occur. He's made it possible for you to be aware of all of the things that you need to know in order to spend eternity with Him in heaven. God has given us everything we need to know. All that is necessary in His divine and inspired way. Now that's important for a number of reasons. One is that you and I will be judged by the word that God has given us. And so this word can't merely be set aside as perhaps being significant, but not so significant that I'm going to concern myself with it. That, I think, is the way some people view the Bible. Yes, it's an ancient document. It is an important document, but maybe not so important that I'm going to spend a lot of time reading it or studying it. And you might be sitting there saying, well, that's not me. Of course, I love my Bible. I'm going to spend time studying my Bible. I'm going to really pour my heart into learning the Word of God. Let me ask you. Did you take time to read the Bible every day this week? Every day? I'm not talking about the one verse that pops up on Instagram. I'm talking about opening up your Bible and reading it. It's one thing for all of us to pull our cell phone out of our pocket or off our clip and to spend hour upon hour in social media. It's another thing to read God's Word. This Word will serve as your judge. It will. We'll be judged on the basis of the words that Jesus spoke. John chapter 12 and verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. John chapter 12 and verse 48. And consequently, we must not ignore the word of God or diminish the word of God or take from the word of God. But instead, we must honor it because of the authority that it possesses. In Mark the 7th chapter, Jesus spoke of some in his day and he said, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. And he said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. I'm afraid in some ways that many times we are like those people whom Jesus rebuked on that occasion. We lay aside the word of God so that we can do what we choose, even if it's something that God's word is against. Or we feign ignorance, willfully so. Because we merely want to chart our own path instead of following what the authoritative Word of God says. Let me suggest to you that if we want to be people who are part of the body of Christ, there must of necessity be steadfastness in our dedication to the authority of the Bible. This book matters. Every single word. That doesn't mean that we live under the Old Testament law today, but the things that were written before time were written for our learning, Romans chapter 15, verse 4. And we can learn about the nature of God and the desires of God for our lives. And we can seek to make the proper application. We need steadfastness. Steadfastness in our dedication to the New Testament pattern. Steadfastness in our dedication to the authority of the Bible. And thirdly, steadfastness in our dedication to the authority of Christ. You see, Jesus is the one to whom has been given all authority. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20, the text describes this process of the authority being granted upon Christ. As Paul wrote that passage, he said in verse 20 beginning, which he worked, and this is in the midst of Paul's prayer, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he, God the Father, put all things under his, Christ's feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We need to ask the question, who's in charge? And the answer is very simple. It is Jesus who is our Lord. And by the way, isn't that really what the idea of Lord conveys to begin with? If one exists as Lord, that one exists in a position of authority. Jesus understood that. That's why he asked, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Luke chapter 6 and verse 46. We need to be dedicated in our willingness to fall at the feet of Jesus and do what he says because he is the Lord. That means yielding our will to his in all things. Now, he emphasized that when he spoke to his apostles. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. You go and you teach what I have commanded. Not our own thoughts, not our own traditions, not what we like, but what our Lord has said. 
And just so the apostles would be sure that they were teaching the doctrine of Christ, he promised them that they would be guided by the Holy Spirit as they did so. John chapter 16 and verse 13. He said, however, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. They were going to speak the message of Jesus and they were going to be guided by the Holy Spirit in doing so. And as we seek to reach a lost and dying world, it will not be because of our own message. It will not be because of our own ideas. It will be because of the message of Jesus the Christ in whose name there is no salvation otherwise. Jesus' name alone is the name that allows men to be saved and through Him and through Him only. Didn't He say that in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. We need the authority of Christ. We need the authority that comes through his name. So Paul told the Colossians, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians chapter 3. In verse 17. Now why is that important? What difference does it make, this whole authority of Christ business? It makes a difference when we describe ourselves to those around us. It's interesting to me that the disciples, the followers of Christ, in the first century were called Christians. Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. When Peter wrote to individuals who were suffering for the cause, he said, if any of you suffer as Christians, let him not be ashamed, but glorify God in that manner. We're not supposed to wear the names of men, but we are supposed to proudly wear the name of Christ. Because He is the one in whom we have all authority. Jesus the Christ. The one to whom we belong. Steadfastness. I must be devoted. Devoted to the New Testament pattern. Simply being a Christian like they were. Honoring the structure of the church. Honoring the worship of the church. Honoring the work of the church. Trying to do what they did. I must be devoted to the authority of the Bible, realizing that God has given us what He expects of us, and I must be willing to follow it. And devoted to the authority of Christ. I must also be, as we've spent some time this week already looking at, devoted to the principle of unity. That is what Jesus wanted. When he prayed in John the 17th chapter, he wanted his followers to have the same unity that he indeed had with the Father. And it's very important for us to recognize that it is this same sort of unity that is used to describe the church in Scripture. When the church is described, it is not described as being divided. It is described rather as belonging to Christ. And when Paul talks about that body in Ephesians chapter 4, he mentions very simply and yet very powerfully, there is one body. We're not talking about as many groups as man might try to establish. We're talking about one. 
And the unity that you and I need to seek is the kind of unity that enables us to be at one with Christ and with one another. And so you have statements like Ephesians 1 and verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. We can be at one with Christ when we obey God's plan, cleansed through His blood. And we can be at one with one another when we seek to follow the plan that God has provided. We need dedication, steadfastness. In what areas do we need to be steadfast? Steadfast in our complete dedication to the New Testament pattern Steadfast in our understanding of the authority of the New Testament. Steadfast in our appreciation and dedication to the authority of Christ. Steadfastness in our dedication to biblical unity. And then, of course, steadfastness in our dedication to preaching the gospel. I can't tell you how encouraged I have been throughout the course of this week by your kindness. The words of appreciation that you have shared with me after some of the lessons has been truly a great lift and encouragement for me. It's thrilling to know that there are individuals who want to hear the gospel message preached. Thank you. Let me remind you, though, it is the gospel that's the power of God to salvation. If we spend all of our time talking about things that are of less importance than the gospel, We've wasted our time. Friends, we ought to be about the business of seeking to go to heaven. About praising our Lord. About doing what God would have us to do. And it is the gospel message that must be proclaimed. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, by which you were also saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And so when we preach the gospel message, we're talking about Jesus the Christ, who came to this earth to die for our sins, and who defeated death through the resurrection. And we're talking about the absolute necessity of believing in His name. And we're talking about the importance of being willing to repent. And we're talking about a willingness to confess Jesus before men so that He will confess us before His Father who is in heaven. And we're talking about being baptized to have our sins washed away. Dedication to the proclamation of the gospel message. We could describe the church in a number of ways. And we could talk about the areas wherein you and I need to be steadfast. Dedicated. If we're going to be people who claim to be followers of Christ, we have to be dedicated to the New Testament pattern. To restoring the church that we read about in the New Testament. That whatever body those folks in Acts chapter 2 were added to, that's the church that we want to be a part of. That means that we organize ourselves the way that they did. It means that we obey the same plan that they obeyed. It means that we worship in the way that they worship and we work the way that they work. We need to be dedicated to the authority of the New Testament, not following the doctrines of men, the ideologies of men, or the traditions of man, but simply being a servant of God and following His Word. Dedication to the authority of Christ. Jesus is the one to whom was given all authority in heaven 
and on earth. Dedication to being united as the Son was with the Father. Dedicated to preaching the gospel. All of those things are areas where we have to be steadfast. There's one more that I think is especially pertinent. We need dedication to living the gospel. You see, it's one thing for us to proclaim that we're Christian. It's another thing to show that, isn't it? There are people that work beside you every day. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself, what do they think of me? Does this person think that I'm honest? Does this person think that I'm kind? Does this person think that I am a Christian? It's one thing to say, I'm a Christian. It's another thing to show that. If someone asked me, what is the most important element in personal evangelism? The most important element in personal evangelism. You know what I would say? The way that you live. The way that you live. You see, Tony and I might be able to sit down with someone who's not a member of the church that belongs to Jesus, and we might be able to very capably show them in Scripture what those individuals did to obey the gospel. But you know what I've found? A person who has not seen Christianity exhibited in the life of their friend has no interest in hearing what the Bible says about their salvation. You see, if they think that you are a Christian and you're not living like you should, they want no part of that. If we want to reach lost souls, we have to do more than talk a good game. We have to be able to teach the Word of God through not only our words, but through our lives. When I was in sixth grade, I had a school teacher named Mr. James Anderson. This was at Upperman in Baxter, Tennessee, public school. Mr. Anderson was in his mid-70s at the time. This was his last year of teaching. I don't think that was because of me, but it might have been. He had a sign that was above the chalkboard. It said, be careful how you live. You may be the only Bible that some people will ever read. I have never forgotten that sign. We had a devotional every morning in his homeroom. Someone asked him about it. Mr. Anderson, can we really do this in the public school system? He said, listen, I'm too old to stop doing what I'm dedicated to doing. And if they want to fire me today, I'll go home. We had verses that we memorized. I'll never forget Psalm 1914. First verse that we remember, remembered that year. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Because an individual was trying to live what he proclaimed. Folks, we need dedication, no question. 
We need dedication to preaching the gospel, but if you're not living the gospel, you are undoing everything else that you say. Are you studying God's Word like you should? Are you growing as a child of God should grow? Are you dedicated? Are you devoted to being what God would have you to be? Paul talked to Timothy about how Christians are to be rich in good works. He described that, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 18. He said, let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. And this lifestyle that we're supposed to lead must also be a lifestyle of holiness. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. It's interesting to me. We live in a very public world today where people are willing to post on the Internet everything that they've ever thought or done. And some of the things that we're posting, friends, are things that we ought to be ashamed of. They're not the sorts of things that make for holiness and service to God. May God have mercy on us. May we seek His will. As Christians, we need to understand and appreciate the importance of steadfastness. Steadfastness, whether we're talking about our dedication to being people who want to restore the church of the New Testament, and so we're going to follow the pattern that is found in Scripture. Steadfastness in adhering to the fact that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, that what it says is true, and that what we must do is follow it. Steadfastness in our dedication to the authority of Jesus as the Christ, who is above all, whose words will serve as our judge whose name is given above all names and through whose name we might have salvation. We need steadfastness. Steadfastness in biblical unity and seeking to have the kind of unity that God wants for us. Steadfastness in proclaiming the gospel. And steadfastness in living the gospel. I'd like to ask you tonight to look at your own life and to be honest. Am I living the gospel? When others look at me, do they see an individual who is dedicated to Christ? And if the answer to that is no, why not make a change? It's thrilling to know that God has communicated His will to us in a way that we can understand. It's thrilling to know that He has a plan for our salvation. And it's thrilling to know that when we fall short, and we will, He's willing to forgive us. I don't know your situation. But I know that we don't always live like we should. And I'm thankful that we serve a God who forgives. If you need to respond to our Lord or His invitation, don't delay. Come right now as together we stand and sing.